0: This podcast is a proud member of the Cyphercast Network. Discover more at cyphercast.net
1: and follow us on Twitter at CyphercastNet.
0: Welcome to Incantations, an Invisible Sun podcast. I'm Dave.
2: And I'm Danny. I'll be covering for Scott, who's been pulled back into shadow.
0: And we will be your guides along the Path of Suns. Today, we sing two spells. With A Distant Light Pierces the Mist, we dig into Monty Cook's campaign setting in the sprawling city of Tolis with our guest, Brandon Ording. And then, with the Vislay Tourist Bureau, we talk about the Gen Con character creation sessions, Danny and Brandon ran. Join us on the Path of Suns, and we may uncover a secret or two.
2: Where the distant light pierces the mist, we discuss inspirations for Invisible Sun games. We're talking to a real-life human being, I think, Mr. Brandon Ording. Brandon ran a 10-year campaign in Tolis, so we figured he might have some insight into the similarities between that setting and Monte's Invisible Sun setting.
0: Cool. All right. Hey, Brandon, uh, why don't you introduce yourself and give us a little overview as to why we brought you onto the show to talk about Tolis?
1: Uh yeah sure uh hi I'm I'm Brandon um and uh, I would certainly be consider myself a super fan of Monty Cook and pretty much everything he's done. That's the only kind of person we bring. Yes, of course. Um, so I spent uh pretty much the past decade running a uh, a game set in Tallis. So uh, if there's anyone else uh, other than Monty himself who uh, knows about the city, it's probably might be me. Uh, it might be fair to say,
0: I don't think Monty ran like worked on Tolis for ten years. So you might be surpassing him here.
1: Well, I mean, I do know Monty ran two or three campaigns, and he had things going simultaneous and uh, things like that. Um, I did actually have a, a kind of a second small campaign running uh, with a different group of people, kind of going concurrently for a little while. It didn't run as long as it, but uh, the events of the two set uh, campaigns kind of bled into uh, into each other. Uh, so that was uh, certainly a unique experience as well.
0: Danny. what's your familiar- familiarity with TOLUS?
2: Um, I'm ashamed to say not very.
0: Well, that's actually perfect because then Brandon can give you an overview of what Tolis is and why we think there might be similarities in there that would be worth discussing oh. uh, in regards to Invisible Sun. So TOLUS, um Brandon, give us the overview.
1: Uh yeah, so uh, the the tallest campaign setting uh, was a setting that Monty created uh, was actually his third edition playtest setting, um, and it was based on a setting that was it was thousands of years after uh, an earlier campaign he had run in second edition. Um, it's it's the the city of tallest is known as the city by the spire, um, and it uh, one of the most prominent features is that it's there's this gigantic uh, like 3000 foot tall uh, stone spire kind of looming above the city. And uh, the most evil place in the world is, uh, is known to be sitting on top. Uh, it's an evil hmm. fortress known as Jebel Shamar. And uh, so you kind of literally have, you know, the capstone, you know, dungeons, you know, looming over the city for the entire campaign. It's uh a super detailed uh, you know, city uh, setting where you can run many campaigns with never exhausting the material in, in the book. Uh, the book itself is it like 670 pages. Uh, the PDF version is over 800 pages with all the extra indexing. Um, wow. And it just has so much material in it. Um, like I said, I ran a game. I bought the book uh, Gen Con in 2006. Uh, so I think a couple of months after that Gen Con, I started the campaign and I just wrapped it up this past January.
2: Did you cry when you wrapped it up?
1: It was, uh, it was a pretty dramatic moment. Um, it was with the exact same group of players who I started it with, uh, and they were all playing the same characters they had started. So they had basically run through and played those game those same characters for that entire campaign. So it was, uh, it was, it was certainly a. It was an interesting moment once that uh, finally came to its conclusion, but, uh, Mm -hmm. um, so that,
0: that campaign setting, it really just focuses on the city. There's nothing outside
1: of it in there, is there? So it does detail a little bit about the world that it's in, but Mm -hmm. it almost is, there's, it's pretty much, there's nothing interesting going on in this world except for in the city. And it, gives there's there's a good explanation in the setting for it because it turns out that there is a lot of reasons why all of the adventuring and evil and all of stuff is all kind of centered in this one one spot in the world. um but yeah, mm-hmm. so you kind of do get a here's what this world is and here's some of the other settings. but for the most part, all of the all of the campaign information is all about the city. so where in, in another book you might get. You know, a quick overview on the cities in a nation, and then here's another nation and another nation, and another continent, and things like that. Instead, in that book, you end up getting, well, here's this district of the city, and you get an entire chapter that goes into that. And then here's another district of the city, and here's how they're different. and um and in each one of those each one of those chapters, you get a really good overview on you know what's what kind of things you can find in that district and what makes it different from another one. And there's all sorts of different levels of detail that it goes into. Um, you might find specific locations detailed uh, to the point where they even have a tactical level map of like the, the building um, mm-hmm. and with it, full NPCs and stat blocks and things like that. But then you might get a, another thing where it's just a, you know, a small description. Um, it also includes things like here are some random encounters that you could have while someone is in that district or, you know, if they go into this shop, here are some of the patrons that you could have them, you know, encounter. Um, and, and then it goes all the way down to kind of listing some prominent NPCs in that district. Um, and then at the very end of each section, there's just a, here's a list of names and other buildings where it's just, you know, almost like a one line description, you know. So it's it's kind of at every level of detail, it zooms in, um, you know, and, or back out. So you get a lot of detail, but there's also still plenty of room for you as a DM to put your own things in, into it as well. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things that
0: I think it shares in common with what Monty's done subsequently is the
1: indexing and referencing. Uh, yes. I would say that that's actually the origin of where that is. Cause like all the stuff that you're used to in a lot of the other MCG products is as far as like the sidebars and the cross referencing and all the indexing uh, that happens throughout that, that all kind of originated in the tallest book. Um, okay. I, I do. I remember when I first saw uh, Numenera uh, that, I was like, oh, they decided to bring all the stuff from Tullus in as well, because it's it's such a good way to build an RPG book, um, because mm-hmm. anytime you find anything of any significance that's being referenced, you look to the sidebar and there you go. Here's a page reference to go find that, where that is in that, you know, in this monstrous book. And so a lot of that stuff originated in that book. Um, I think it was a how do you make a book that is 700 pages? You know, how do you make that manageable? Mm-hmm. Um, and for I think somebody
0: who needs to use it and
1: reference it at the table, right. To make it a useful table reference, you know, that kind of thing. And I've, there's been times where, you know, it's like, I've, I, I'll usually have the book, you know, when I was running a session, I have it you know, near nearby and it was like, all right, I, I know this section. Oh, there's this cross reference. Let me go take a look at this thing, found the thing I was looking for and move on without having to, you know, bring the game to a halt for, you know, 20 minutes while I'm trying to find something in an 800 page book.
0: There there is that uh the referencing and indexing that I, I'm gonna be curious about uh to see how it's done with Invisible Sun, because that's gonna have four books that are being produced all at the same time that are gonna be cross-referencing each other uh, from the sound of right. it. Right. Um but uh there's another part of Invisible Sun that I think is going to have um, you know, far more similarities to Tolis than just the the referencing. So one of the things that I think is gonna be uh, interesting for Invisible Sun uh, in the sense that it ties back to Tolis is I think one of the major features that's going to show up in the setting is going to be the City of Saturn. Uh, also called the City of Notions. Uh, it's got a whole bunch of other names. I I can't recall all of them. Um, but Saturn sh- had its own entry in the Kickstarter. It's part of the actuality, which is the realm of the... B- indigo sun it's the indigo sun not blue blue is dreams and whatnot um and when i was reading through all of the information that we had about saturn and how it's this large expansive city and it's been around for you know ages and well millennia uh, and it existed uh before ooh, i'm trying to remember what the lore is on the kickstarter but basically saturn existed Um, before people populated it, and then, you know, Visley and humans showed up and they took over Saturn. And now you have this huge, bombed-out, war-devastated city that seems to be, like, you know, probably the preferred starting point for any new campaign in Invisible Sun. Uh, So when I was reading through that, I said, you know, this sounds a lot like uh, the work that Monty had done in Tolis, which I only had passing familiarity with. So I was curious, um, how do you think the lessons that you've learned from TOLIS are going to apply to a campaign that's run in Invisible Sun? Uh, you know, Given that you had this large urban setting that TOLUS focuses on, and then you have another major urban focus for Invisible Sun, like what lessons did you learn running a
1: 10-year campaign in a city. Uh, so that's, that's interesting because it's like, there's a lot of guidance in the, the tallest book about like, how do you run an urban setting? You know, that kind of thing like that. And, uh, and I found a lot of that stuff was, uh, you know, really, really helpful. And th- the thing is like, you have to keep in mind that when, you are in a city um especially for like well like a DD campaign uh resources are plentiful so um it's not just you can't just expect them to be like going on an extended adventure and then well no i'll just go back to the town you know and that kind of thing it's like you just go back up and go buy some more magic potions and things like that um so there there's a lot of uh kind of interesting ideas about how to make the city feel, you know, real, like how to bring it to life. Um and uh like for example, wh- one of the handouts that was uh in the book was uh, just sort of a, like a random encounter chart. Um but instead of being, you know, random monsters you might have to fight, it was oh, you went by the warrens, which are, you know, the the slums of the city. Well, as you're walking by there, you know, there's a couple of kids and they they start throwing rotten eggs at you you know? Mm -hmm. Um, so, so you kind of get those kind of things where it's like, as you're traveling across the city, just based on which district you happen to be going to and from, you kind of get these little things you can just toss in there to kind of add in some background, uh, noise to the city, you know, to kind of bring it to life. Um, so there's a lot of things like that that I expect, um, would be helpful. Um, uh, running, you know, seven Saturn because it feels like, you know, as you said, from the, the Kickstarter information that you're could run an invisible sun setting, you know, campaign and you would spend most of your time there. It's like, I know there's all of the different, you know, suns and things like that, but it's like, I, I get the impression that like there's a there's a big like, oh, let's just hang out in Saturn because there's gonna be plenty to do there.
2: When you said that about the the information about the urban settings, the things that happen, I immediately thought of and help me out guys, the the big zones that are blasted in Saturn. Um
0: uh, um I know what you're talking about, the like devastation zones or something.
2: Yeah. And and the different things that would happen there. And you thought of those random encounters you were just speaking of. I'm like, ooh, I didn't even think of you know, the things that are going to have to happen there that aren't just walking through the forest. Right, you know?
1: and uh, you mentioning that uh, kind of brings up, so I think, some more interesting parallels because, uh, so Tullus is a very large city, so you have plenty of, uh, you know, urban-type things where you're dealing with, you know, people in the city, but it also, there is a massive system of dungeons underneath the city. So you can mix, uh, you know, more traditional, you know, dungeon crawling type adventures with your urban campaign by, st- but still be you know, relatively close to the city. Cause you're always a quick hop back up to the surface. Um, and with the, uh, the ruined areas of, of Saturn, you kind of get that same thing because yes, you can be in a nice populated area and, you know, track down, you know, a, a store or a place you need to go visit. Uh, but then you can also go into there and you could have a more, well, traditional combat encounter type scenario. Um, mm-hmm. though not that I expect anything in Invisible Sun to really feel traditional. Uh, but it, it kind of <laughs> gives you that blend of of campaign styles that you can fit in there, but all without still having it in that same thing. And that that's really something that I think Tullis did really well. Um so it had enough stuff in there that it gave you variety
0: rather than just locking you into Oh no, guys! We're just playing
1: in a city, right? Right. It's despite the fact that it's like oh, the entire campaign takes place in a city. There's still a lot of different things that can happen there, and it's a lot of different variety of of all sorts of different adventures and things you can do. So, I expect to see the same sort of thing uh, in Invisible Sun as well.
2: Question for you about that? Then, so you're you're talking about them? You know, living in the city and spending ten years in this campaign. Where did they live? Did they have their own houses? Did they, you know, did you develop that neighborhood like we're going to be doing in Invisible Sun when we do character creation?
1: Uh, so the characters that over the course of the campaign, um, they started out as, they. St- I started the campaign with them all having never been to the city before. So they were all new. So they all joined in. So uh, joined, they kind of met each other and they all you know, came to the city. Um, so they started off just kind of spending you know buying rooms at the inn and things like that and there's there's a a particular district of the city uh well that's a subsection in the district of the city called uh, delvers square and that's kind of the it's the adventuring section of the city kind of in a microcosm because you've got all the things you might need right there so they they spent a lot of time there at first um but eventually you know they wanted to get their own place so they ended up making a deal with a uh one of the crime bosses and they got a, a small apartment uh that they had kind of on loan um but uh through some interactions with some other npcs that got burnt down um so um uh, but eventually they they found themselves uh they found themselves uh having received a uh place called Rosegate House which was this uh this estate in the Nobles Quarter and so from that point on, they kind of used that as their base of operations and found themselves having to interact with nobles on a regular basis because they had to travel in that area to get to the house that they had just received as a reward. A uh, question about
0: that estate that they received. Did you did you find that you could use that as, uh, I guess, a hook to, you know, kick off new stories for them or things for them to track down. Could you pull that into the campaign as more than just, Hey, this is your thing, but could you use it to motivate them?
1: Uh, Yes. Uh, There were a number of opportunities where um, the fact that they had this attachment to this house um, and we had it mapped out to the point where like we knew like what it actually looked like and where the rooms were and, Turned out that there was a dun- the, a basement that they didn't know about when they first uh, <laughs> when they first got it. They discovered it, so it's like very much like how you know Invisible Sun. You kind of have these houses that you may not know what's there and secret rooms and things. It turned out there was a secret basement in this place, and when they first discovered it, there was some sort of crazy vampire down there. So they had to deal with that. Um, and yeah, there were a number of times where the fact that they had this kind of this base of operations. Um, it kind of became relevant. Um, and it wasn't always just me like, aha, I'm going to take this thing and destroy it because yep. you know, you have it. But, um, <laughs> even to the point where they started, uh, you know, trying to hire people to, to man, maintain the grounds and have bodyguards at the place and all that kind of stuff. So there were, there were a lot of opportunities there where that, that was, it became a, a kind of a, a big focal point, um, over the, over the length of the campaign.
2: So this really was a living city for them.
1: Oh, definitely. Um they uh they it's like they over the over the time this like they became friends with uh you know various NPCs. Um, they they turned out that uh you know one of the characters their grandfather worked at uh at the the Delver's guild uh, library, which is basically a place that adventurers go to get maps and things. So it's like a, they had a connection there and um, o- over time, let say some of these things evolved. I mean, eventually their grandfather died um, Well, he was assassinated by the, the assassins guild, the VI and <laughs> retribution for something that the characters did. But, uh, um, but yeah, so like they, they, uh, they were very in- involved in the things going on in the city. Um, but they were also kind of instrumental in shaping some of the events too. So it wasn't just them, you know, latching on to things and reacting. It's like they, they very much started trying to shape events themselves. Yeah. And that was the next question I had, uh, how much of this were they
0: driving versus what you were presenting to them as part of your campaign plans?
1: So I wouldn't say that it was as completely player driven as it appears that Invisible Sun is focused on. Mm-hmm. Um, but if, if, if only because that was not something that occurred to me to be like, let's just make it completely player focused. You know, that's, I think that's kind of an innovation that uh, I think in a, uh, Invisible Sun's got, but the fact that they were so invested in the characters and the setting Uh, it made them start to want to do things. And it's like, it wasn't always about, well, what adventure hook am I going to throw at them this week? You know, that Mm -hmm. kind of thing. Um, And one of the other things that really, uh, for running the game as long as I did, is it allowed them to continually, you know, act to things and then see the repercussions of those actions. Um, And even to the point where there were things that happened years later, Like that because of, you know, something that happened earlier in the campaign, they got to see that stuff play out and the repercussions of those actions. And and so that was something that I was, I was always tried to do, um, as much as I could was there was never a point where you could call something done. Like it was, there was always what's the next step and what's the next thing and what's the reaction to that, Mm -hmm. um, and I think that was a, another key point to making the city feel alive and feel real, because it wasn't just, here's the adventure, all right, we're done. It's, we had to go do something in the city, but while we were doing this thing in the city, two or three other things all kind of happened to overlap, or happened to also be relevant, so... um And then something that they had dealt with before came back into the picture in a different way. So it was like, it, it really added a feel of, I think, a realism to it. And, and I think, I think there were a couple pieces there for one, it was just over the length of the campaign. It was inevitable. That kind of stuff could happen, but Mm -hmm. the setting itself and the basing it all in one location, I think allows for that, that you don't get out of a, like a more traditional campaign where you're just murder hobos and traveling all over the places you're never in one place long enough to deal with the repercussions of your actions necessarily because you roll away and then you don't deal with them unless you happen to come back to that area but in the city of Tullus you are there all the time Mm -hmm. um so you're always going to be dealing with the fact that you if you pissed off the you know the assassins guild well you're going to have to deal with that because now they're coming after you, you know, that kind of thing. Um,
2: really makes you think twice about putting that blade in the kidney.
1: Yes.
0: Um, I guess before we wrap up here on Tolis, uh, is there anything, any final thoughts that you have about your experience with Tolis and what you're expecting from invisible sun?
1: Hmm. Well, so I guess one other thing that I, I did want to mention is is just seeing you know the kind of themes and things that were in the city um of Tullus and then comparing it to like the stuff that's been talked about in Invisible Sun um I do find a lot of interesting kind of parallels there um Mm -hmm. where I think Monty's kind of like revisited some of the same is visiting some of the same themes um like on the surface level uh, you know, invisible sun is the source of magic. Well, in Tullus, there was an invisible moon of magic. Um, so, I mean, that that's just that's kind of a silly example. Familiar. But uh, there's there was also uh, these things uh, known as the jewels of Parnath, um, which were these sort of these pocket uh, realms like pocket planes, dimensions that were they were all based on these metaphysical concepts. Um, okay. You know, things like Uh, beginnings and endings, or the physical, or energy, the mind, spirit, magic, and the divine. Um, So those were all of these different ones, and each one of them had a ruler. And the idea was that if you could travel through them and progress through them, you could gain uh, divinity. Um, So I found a lot of interesting like it's like when they first started talking about the path of sons Mm -hmm. and the fact that each of these is a realm and a place you can travel and has this concept and a, and a warden. I was just like, that really feels like, you know, the jewels of Parnath. Um, So I I found like, and there's, there are a number of other things where, you know, you can find some parallels there. Um, Mm -hmm. But uh, I think, I think for someone who's for, as far as, looking to Tallis for, you know, inspiration to run an Invisible Sun game, Uh, especially if you think you're going to be wanting to run something, you know, in Saturn for a a large portion of it, which it certainly sounds like you'll be starting there. And I can, I imagine a lot of it will be, you know, there. I think there's a, there's a lot you could probably, you know, pick up and learn um, from how to run, you know, an urban setting, you know, through that, that campaign setting
0: um and this is available through a pdf somewhere right is this something you can find on
1: drive uh yes i think drive through rpg sells okay. the pdf still uh i think they also sell print on demand versions that, like it's split okay. into two pieces now uh it's like it's because it's not i don't think you can. I, you might be able to get it in one but i know for a while at least they were selling like print on demand ones where you could get it and then it was split into two smaller books um but the original the original one's long out of print
2: Brandon, I do have a question about uh, parallels there and similarity. For a personal interest, um, are there any cool bars in Tolis like there's zeros in uh, *Invisible Sun*?
0: Hmm. Let's see. Yeah, are there any demons roving around so, as bars
1: in Tolis? Yeah. <laughs> okay, so there aren't <laughs> demons running around as as bars. Uh, but there, there is a bar that if you go to it, uh, you could encounter, um, a bodyguard of the son of the, uh, one of the crime families. He hangs out at this bar and he's this vampire who is the vampire of the void. And like, like he opens his mouth and it's just kind of this empty <laughs> void inside. Ooh. So that, that, that guy's interesting. Uh, I want to say that's the Onyx Spider is the name of the bar. Um, Might not be the best place to go, but uh, I just
2: had to. No, for curiosity's sake.
1: (laughs) Yes. Um, I guess one other aspect that there where there's a lot of parallels is that in the the production quality or the the aspect of the fact that it was you know Invisible Sun is going to be this massively deluxe you know Mm -hmm. product. And Tullus was also this massively deluxe RPG book, yeah, six hundred pages, and they did pre-orders for it. Right, they they did pre-orders for it, Uh, so there was almost like kind of like a proto Kickstarter for it. Um, And it was this, you know, super high deluxe, you know, printing, um, you know, massive book, six hundred something pages. But then when you bought that, it also came with. Like this envelope full of maps and player handouts and all sorts of different, uh, kind of like a wanted poster and an example of a broadsheet and all of these little things that you could use as props in the game. Um, it also came with a completely separate uh, 96 page adventure on top of all the other adventure material mm-hmm. that was already in the book. Uh, and then it also had a CD that had even more material on it, a bunch of additional. Uh, additional PDFs, and uh, the original Bane Warren's Adventure, which was the first product that Monty put out that was set in the city. Um, So, yeah, it's like, for the price, it's like you just got all of this Mm -hmm. stuff. It was kind of crazy to see exactly how much you got for it. Um, So I I think that's another area where it's like, oh, let's try to do this big, massive, deluxe RPG. Well, here's Invisible Sun. uh, Kind of the next iteration of yeah. Can we make something bigger? Yes. Like, and it's even, it's even crazier. You know, it really is. It's like when you look at everything you're going to be getting with Invisible Sun. So.
2: So it sounds like I'm going to have to go on eBay.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I for all that. Myself all that of coffee. Stuff. <laughs> yeah. Like if you want to get all of that stuff, you can probably still find it around. Um, it's been a while since I looked, um, but you can certainly get a large. So one of the things is a lot of those handouts and stuff do can mm-hmm. come in the PDF. So if, you can you can always get it that way too if you're interested in checking it out. But uh, I think it's a really awesome book. I think the setting's amazing. Um, and again, I think there's a lot of good kind of GMing advice and stuff in there that I think would be applicable for any sort of uh, campaign that has a kind of an urban an urban uh, twist.
0: Um, well, we'll find a, a link for the show notes over to the drive-through RPG version that you can grab and. I think from here, we're going to move on to our next segment. We're stopping in at the Visley Tourist Bureau one more time so we can talk to Danny and Brandon about their experience running the Invisible Sun character creation seminars at Gen Con. So, uh, Scott and I have touched on this a little bit here and there in some of our previous episodes, but... Hey, we've got two people that actually ran the character creation seminars on the mics right now. So, hey, why don't we talk to them and see if they have any takeaways, if they learned anything, if they have any tips uh, or if they have any horror stories. Let's not talk about horror (laughs) stories. We're a fan cast. Uh, We're (laughs) super biased. So let's, you know, let's stick with that. So, um, hey, you two both ran character creation seminars, didn't you? Yeah. How'd they go?
2: Awesome, um, I I wasn't in one with you, Brandon, but I did one with Scott, and it was really great. We had people that didn't have tickets that you know it was full and just wanted to come and listen to it, which was like a really cool feeling having so much enthusiasm. And everybody got really into it. You know, the big lesson I learned from it is got to give people time, a little bit time to warm up when they're unfamiliar with the process of character creation. There. kind of set an example and do some examples and as people go on you know they get more comfortable yelling out things and uh, it was an amazing time I want to do it again.
0: Uh, Do you think that uh, warm-up is something you're going to run into at your own table with your friends or is this more of a like big big session at Gen Con thing where hey nobody really wants to talk first?
2: I think it's definitely going to depend on the table. Um I have some friends that are familiar with, you know, r- being in a campaign that I run where they contribute so much to the story and then ones that are more of the traditional, the GM runs everything, they decide on everything. So I think for a group like that, it is going to be more of a warm-up thing because they're going to be unfamiliar with them making their world, them making being so player driven. So I think I will definitely, when you first do it, when you start with the first character, give them a little bit more time and have everybody contribute and maybe not make some final decisions right away so they can see as things go on what everybody else is playing off of each other.
0: Mm-hmm. Cool. Um, Brandon, uh, how how were your character session? How was your character session?
1: Uh, yeah, so I ran uh, the one on Sunday. Uh was one of the last events of Gen Con. Um, uh, with uh, Darcy Ross, uh, and uh, that was that was also uh, really 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 good. Um, had everybody was really enthusiastic. Uh, yeah, but it, uh, like Danny, like you were saying, uh, the first couple things once we started, you know, getting everybody at the table and get the character sheets handed out, and uh, just kind of was like, all right, here's the overview, of what we're going to be doing, and it took a little, you know, a couple times. For, I think for you know to get some suggestions, but once it started happening, then it was just like the floodgates lifted, and everybody. Uh just started participating, and we' got you know some really good suggestions for things um it's a, uh it's so it i think everybody really very quickly grasped like what we were going for and like what sort of suggestions were you know good and kind of picking up on the whole surreal mm-hmm. aspect of it um that that's people picked up on that very quickly um so, I mean, I don't know, maybe, maybe, maybe everybody in the room already knew exactly what was going on and they just were waiting to, to, you know, blurt out some good, cool stuff. But, uh, uh, they, I think at this point it's been long enough that I don't remember any, any specific examples, but, uh, there were some, some really good suggestions that came out of it. So.
2: Oh, same. I mean, there were times where I was trying not to like laugh hysterically at some of them but they were just wonderful. Everybody was losing it. And it makes you appreciate just hearing completely new fresh ideas,
0: hey, Danny. as we were talking leading up to the recording for this show, you had said you had uh, picked up a couple of things that you wanted to remember from those sessions. You want to elaborate on that?
2: yeah, the the big thing i oh well, I already touched on it a little bit was mm-hmm. giving people time to warm up to it. Um, and then the other one was really letting. I know everybody's supposed to be getting involved in it, but what I really loved is uh, people fighting for each other. Like, no, that should be positive, uh, a positive or a negative, and letting them um, really work it out together and stepping back from it and letting them, you know, really fight their battle and you just bang at the end, letting them do it how they want. And I don't
0: know. I don't don't know if we've actually touched on uh, the positive and negative stuff uh, previously. Mm-hmm. Um, what what is the positive and negative stuff you're talking about there? Like what are they fighting for?
2: Yeah. So I'll give a first example as you're deciding on your neighbor. So you, you know, everybody's throwing out dares about a neighbor and you make a decision. This is my neighbor. He's the baker next door that, you know, is secretly in love with me or the such. And you when you're in character creation, you need to decide whether the neighbor is going to be a positive thing for you, a negative thing or neutral. And depending on what it is there, if you're it's a positive thing you will get a joy for it. And if it's negative, you get a point of uh, despair, which as we know, we like both in the game. Um, Mm -hmm. So you do need to decide this for your neighborhood, the neighborhood problems, the point of interest, and you can make some things that initially look negative, actually really positive. And that's where I liked everybody else's contribution towards that.
0: Was just thinking of something to go along with the negative and positive things. Um, So as the, you were acting as the GM over this, um, you know, session. So were you looking to them to argue for, you know, should this this thing that they pitched be a good or a bad thing? Did you did you leave that up to them, or were you thinking about that yourself?
2: Um, I actually left it more towards them to fight it, and the the bottom, you know, the end game, the end choice was all right. Yeah, that's definitely a jo- uh, a joy. You know, you you won your case, but I did let them do it, and it was. What I really liked was everybody was playing off of each other to decide that because they all blended in together. Like um, we didn't do it like, all right, here's a neighbor and it's automatically going to be a joy or negative. We waited in, or excuse me, it's automatically going to be a joy or despair. We waited till we named everything in the neighborhood, you know, all the neighbors, the problems, um, everything like that. And then whether it was a joy or despair, kind of bounced off the other things that were in the neighborhood.
0: Okay. So you waited until everything was built out and then you decided on a whole like taking this all together this neighborhood seems terrible let's give them a despair
2: yes and there was one that had a graveyard and then it was haunted by this ghost and but it turned out being positive because the ghost uh scared away intruders from the person's house and so initially it looked bad but it wasn't and it Mm -hmm. worked out really awesome
0: uh any any insights that uh, you came in with came away with brandon that you want to you know use
1: going forward i would say that uh people are surprisingly more imaginative than i was even expecting and i knew that that was going to be a thing uh so it's like i knew people were going to you know come up with some great ideas and they were even more so than, than that so it's like it's It's the just the idea that uh, I I think the very first time I read some of the character creation stuff, I was like, well, I'm not sure how this is going to work at a table. But, uh, you know, seeing it, how well it worked in a group of very large, you know, very large group, I can see it. I can see how that also will work, you know, at a gaming table. So it's like it's um, it's interesting to see how how well that actually played out and how. How interesting. How how the, the that being the first session you do for an Invisible Sun campaign, how that just sets the tone for what everything else is gonna be. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, I think it's it's a it's a great way to really start introducing to the players like this is not gonna be a regular RPG. This is gonna be something very different. And um getting them enter, you know, and the fact that you are picking neighbors and theses for other players and that you're not designing that for your own character. Um, seeing that thou, how, how well that worked out. I think it really, it's a, it's a, it's a really interesting choice that, you know, Monty did there to make everybody invested in everything else. So it's like, I, I liked seeing how well that actually worked.
2: Yeah, it really is an exciting way to start off a game. I never thought that session one can be such a blast
0: uh yeah i mean in the in the couple session ones that i've done uh it is a ton of fun to sit around and brainstorm that stuff with the rest of the table so i'm really looking forward to doing it with my regular group Mm -hmm. uh so we're going to be running up on our time here it's uh we're going to cut this segment a little bit short but hey we've got a whole show already put together so uh, thank you so much for joining us, Danny and Brandon. Um, thank you for having us. If we have, yeah, my pleasure. Um, if we have an opportunity to bring bring you two on again, uh, once you know NDAs lift up, <laughs> then uh, you know we'll have to talk about that. Yes,
1: yeah, I'd be happy to be on again. This ends our walk. Maybe you discovered something today. Maybe you need to look closer. The music was titled Beyond, from Wes Otis and Plate Mail Games. It is available from Drive-Through RPG. Invisible Sun is currently available for pre-order at invisiblesunrpg.com. For a limited time, you'll receive an additional Sooth deck when you pre-order the game. You can find our blog at incantationspodcast.blogspot.com or email us at IncantationsPodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. You can find me at agenseer.com a g o n s e e r on twitter
0: and you can find me at tex underscore red on twitter do us a favor leave us a rating uh, and a review on itunes uh it really helps people find out about our show another great way is to just uh tell a friend uh tell a friend about incantations tell them about invisible sun and that would really help us out a lot